0: The Secret Church podcast is a resource from radical.net. For the Secret Church 11 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit radical.net/sc11. This is Secret Church 11, episode 6. God places high priority on care for the orphan and for the widow, James 1:27, visit orphans and widows so gospel foundations all over scripture. Care of the father for the widow he cares for the widow all, all over all these verses. See the compassion of the son for the widow, whether it's the widow at Nain in Luke chapter 7. His warning to the scribes and the Pharisees in commendation of the, the widow putting her offering in in Mark chapter 12, even his care for Mary in John 19. And see the concern of the church for the widow. In Acts chapter 6, picture of Tabitha and the widows in Acts chapter 9 so here's the instructions and what you've got in 1 Timothy 5 we're not going to read through that passage but I'm going to sum it up here you can go back and read through the passage biblical instruction to the church is clear Paul says the Bible says honor destitute widows through support I put a quote here from Bruce Winter that helps you uh, kind of get a little glimpse into first century culture in Ephesus where Paul was writing this letter First Timothy Paul doesn't say anybody who's a widow care for them in this way Instead, he actually puts qualifiers on which widows should be cared for. And he says, they must be devoid of relatives. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn, learn to show godliness in their own household and make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. So sons and daughters are intended to support their parents and grandparents. This pleases our God. This demonstrates the gospel. If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, it's impossible for a Christian not to care for the own members of his household. Pleases God, demonstrates the gospel, and this relieves the church, first Timothy five, sixteen. Let the church not be burdened with that, so they may care for those who are truly widows. So family is to take precedent here whenever possible. Church is not intended to be the first line of defense with widows. Second line of defense, family first. So they must be devoid of relatives. And they must be dependent on God. They've set their hope in God, 1 Timothy 5, 5, trusting in Him. Much like the widow in 1 Kings chapter 17. They must be dependent on God and they must be devoted to prayer. She says, but Paul says she continues in supplications and prayer night and day. Not self-indulgent, but Christ-centered. Oh, the picture is wonderful here. The picture of Christian widows with a unique devotion to prayer and ministry of prayer. So it's, you, know, you can't help but think about Anna in Luke chapter 2. Widowed, advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and praying night and day. I read a quote from Susan Hunt that just seems so applicable here. She said, it seems to me that widows have entered into a dimension of dependence on God that prepares them for the ministry of intercessory prayer. The widow's might was recognized and commended by Jesus because she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Perhaps the widow's might is most mighty when these women band together as helper defenders in intercessory prayer. Older women who do not have the daily responsibilities of jobs are another power source for intercessory prayer. That's the picture here. So support widows who are devoid of relatives and dependent on God. And then he talks about enlisting older widows for service. And that's what he talks about in, other, in the second part of the section on widows in First Timothy chapter 5. And he gives qualifications for those who are enlisted. They must be mature women. They must have been faithful wives. They must care for children. They must be a hospitable host. They must be humble servants. They must be unselfish. They must be kind, devoted to good works. And then he encourages younger widows to marry in 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 15. There was evidently a problem at Ephesus with younger widows who were being encouraged not to marry by false teachers. And as a result, they were causing disruption in the church. And so Paul says, he's addressing a specific circumstance here. He says, they must avoid laziness, which we see all of scripture. And they must abhor gossip, which also is all over scripture. And so the whole picture in 1 Timothy 5 is the gospel compelling families to care for their relatives in the words of John Calvin, before the church has to carry the burden, let the children do their duty. And churches to care for the widows. Particularly those who do not have anyone to care for them. That is, that is provision from God. Alright, that was a speed round. Now, and there's resources on the Megan International website. If you want to dive deeper into that. I hate to gloss over anything quickly here. But you, you can look up 1 Timothy chapter 5. We dove into that, that whole passage there in depth as a church. The gospel and... And divorce. So we're looking at man's distortions now. And, uh, obviously this is, this is heavy for many, many people. I doubt that there are, there are many people all across the place tonight here and around the world who have not in some way been affected by divorce in their family or near to their family. And so I want to, I want to be careful to address this with gravity for anybody who's considering divorce, and with tenderness, for those of you who have wounds from divorce. So I pray that the Word will will do that. Um, there's three passages: First Corinthians chapter seven, Matthew chapter nineteen, and then Deuteronomy chapter twenty-four. Let's let's read them quickly. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I'm not the Lord, meaning he's not quoting from Jesus here, that if any brother who has a wife, brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Then you go to Matthew chapter 19. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul quotes from Jesus in the beginning there. And he's quoting from here. And it's paralleled in Luke 16 and Mark chapter 10. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this same, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And then you got Deuteronomy chapter 24, which is the passage that that conversation is referring to there in Matthew chapter 19. When a man takes his wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor, so this is what God said in the Old Testament, in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, Then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord God, Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. And then you got Genesis chapter two there. So, how do we understand the word of, word of God there? I want to start by making just a couple of statements about divorce in the church. I think that in too many cases we've insulated ourselves, dearth of teaching, void of teaching in the church on divorce. We've isolated each other. As a result of lack of teaching on divorce, we don't know how to relate biblically to friends and family members who are considering divorce, who have been divorced. So what do you say to a Christian who's contemplating divorce? All this leads to the third conclusion that concerns me. We've ignored the problem. We prefer not to talk about it, not to deal with it. And that's a mistake. It is wrong, brothers and sisters, when Christians are running to the courts, when they should be running to the church to talk about divorce. If a Christian today is contemplating a divorce, first thing they often do is to hire a divorce lawyer, go to divorce court. That is wrong, unbiblical. The Bible's clear on this. Look in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul's shocked that believers are taking one another to court. God forbids a Christian husband to take a Christian wife or a Christian wife to take a Christian husband to court. The Bible sets up other avenues, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, to handle disputes among believers. I'm not saying that all judges and lawyers are bad. That's not the point. The point is, God has set up a process in His church for settling disputes with one another, and we need to start, when it comes to marital struggles, with running to the church, not the courts. We need to, we need to do this with one another. And we in the church can't sit back and watch the state take over the institution of marriage in such a way that the church is hardly involved at all. That's wrong, and it needs to change. We certainly shouldn't be letting a pagan judge or pagan lawyers determine the fate of our families. Paul says, and very clearly in 1 Corinthians 5, we are discrediting the testimony of the church when they can't be handled within the church and we are disgracing the name of Christ. What are we saying to an increasingly godless court system when half the cases they're dealing with are taking place between supposed Christians? Now, my goal, I don't want to harp unnecessarily on lawyers or court officials, but I will say this based on what we're looking what we're about to look at. If you build your life and your business and your industry around making divorce cheap and easy, then you scorn the design of God and the glory of Christ in marriage. And you're accountable to God for that. And I want to urge you to repent and seek his forgiveness before it is too late. So what should the church do? Here's what we should do we should comfort one another with love. Bear one another's burdens. Not isolate each other, but be with each other. Stand beside each other. And while we do that, confront one another with truth. We're careful to comfort. We don't comfort with falsehood. That's no comfort at all. We communicate scripture, truth. We don't say what feels best in that circumstance. We say what God has said about divorce. So we, we, we want to do both. Comfort, confront. Love, Truth. Truth and love. So what does God say about divorce? First and foremost, God created marriage. We've seen this tonight. God created marriage. Marriage is defined by God. Wise words from J. Adams there. If marriage were of human origin, then human beings would have a right to set it aside. But since God instituted marriage, only has, he has the right to do so. Marriage is an institution which includes, which includes individual marriages, of course. It's subject to the rules and regulations set down by God. Individuals may marry, be divorced, and be remarried only if, when, and how. He says they may, be, they may without sinning. The state has been given the task of keeping orderly records, etc. But it has no right or competence to determine the rules for marriage and for, for divorce. That prerogative is God's. Similarly, you and I don't have the the right to determine the rules for marriage and divorce. God does. Marriage is a covenant under God. He is a covenant keeping God and marriage is intended to reflect His covenant love. We've talked about this. Marriage demonstrates in the world of Christ's covenant with His people. Divorce is not good because Christ will never divorce His people. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So God created marriage. Second, God hates divorce. Malachi 2, 15 and 16. He hates the cause of divorce. Divorce is always a result of sin. Divorce was not a part of God's original design. It's always a result of sin. That's the whole point of Deuteronomy chapter 24. And that's why Jesus alludes to that in Matthew. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce because your hearts were hard. It's always a result of sin in marriage. Always. Divorce is also almost always sinful. I say almost always because we're about to see in Matthew and 1 Corinthians that God allows divorce in circumstances. In those situations, divorce itself is not necessarily sinful. But divorce is oftentimes sought in ways that that are not allowed in Scripture. And so many, many, many times is sinful in and of itself. God hates the causes of divorce, and God hates the consequences of disorder, divorce. You look at Malachi two thirteen through sixteen, you see that divorce negatively affects physical offspring. Divorce affects kids. I want to be I want to be really careful because I I want, to, I want to I want to speak strongly here to moms and dads who are considering divorce and buying into the lie that this will be better for your kids. When there will be consequences for kids, but I want to speak tenderly here because some of you have grown up in broken homes and I don't want to heap more on you. But the picture is God knows what He is, is talking about when He says, let, let them not rip apart that which I've joined together. So divorce negatively affects physical offspring. Divorce negatively affects spiritual offspring. We, just the effects of divorce on the portrayal of Christ in the world are real we hinder the advancement of the gospel in divorce because we lie about Christ's relationship to his church so god created marriage hates divorce and then god regulates divorce divorce was not a part of his plan in that, sense, God, in that sense, God never willed divorce. But the picture we see in Deuteronomy 24, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is the Bible's acknowledgement. The divorce is a reality, so God gives these regulations. And so what, what you've got is you've got two basic biblical grounds for divorce. One in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and one in Matthew chapter 19. And even the more in Matthew chapter 19, some scholars have debated because you look at the parallel passages in Mark and Luke and they don't include this exception clause. But what you've got here, we'll start with, we'll start with one divorce, one ground for divorce among believers. And that ground for divorce would be adultery. Matthew 19, talking about two Christians. People in Matthew 19 are asking about Deuteronomy chapter 24. They talked about, can you, can you divorce somebody for finding something indecent about her? And there were different kind of rules and regulations people were trying to follow based on that picture in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and a lot of the ways that that had been skewed. And so Jesus brings it down to this one exception. He says, in adultery, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the word for sexual immorality there is pornea, from which we get pornography. And the picture is sexual sin, it breaks the covenant of marriage, adultery is grounds for divorce, is grievous sin. And in the Old Testament, we see it was, was punishable by death. And here in the New Testament, we see Jesus talking about how it is permissible to divorce. Divorce in this situation, Jesus says, is possible. Divorce is possible in this situation. Which is where we begin to see some of the implications of the gospel for divorce in Scripture. Because in the gospel, sin is not the end of the story. In the Old Testament, adultery comes... There's no, there's no question. Immediate divorce or death with the gospel. There's hope. Divorce between believers is not desirable. What you see in Matthew chapter 19, this is possible, but it's not mandated. There's a redemptive approach here to conflict in marriage. As followers of Christ, we are not looking for reasons to divorce, and that's exactly what the crowd was doing in Matthew chapter four, 19. They were looking for reasons to divorce, and Jesus looks at them and say, says it's not required even then. Divorce between believers. We're not looking for a reason to divorce. Divorce between the believers is it's possible in this situation, but it's not inevitable. This is the radical who in Matthew chapter 18 said, if a brother sins against you seven times in a day, even, seven, even t- comes back to you and says over and over again, I, I'm sorry, I repent, forgive him, forgive him. I, I cannot imagine the pain of a spouse committing adultery. Nor, obviously, do I want to imagine. So I'm not presuming to know what it's like to be in your shoes. But I I would simply urge you to see the power of the gospel in your heart. And in process, look for reconciliation to occur. It's what the New Testament, what the gospel is after. So there is allowance for divorce in such situations, but that doesn't mean it has to happen or it's inevitable. We're not looking for a reason to divorce. We're looking, longing, praying, working, hoping for reconciliation to occur. That's the ground for divorce among believers, adultery. Then you get to 1 Corinthians 7, and Paul addresses the situation between a believer and an unbeliever. One ground for divorce there, abandonment. And basically, what Paul says is if it's possible for you to continue living with your unbelieving husband or wife, then do so, and love them in a way that shows Christ. Again, the picture here is reconciliation. But Paul acknowledges that there may be times when an unbelieving spouse insists on divorce and abandons, leaves. And in such situations, divorce is not just possible. Paul says divorce is preferable in that situation. It's a passive imperative in verse 15. Let him go. Let him do so. So those are the two grounds for biblical divorce. Adultery and abandonment. Now, you'll notice that that that's a pretty pretty narrow list right there and there are a lot of other things we begin to wonder Well, what about this or what about this or what about this and i want to encourage you especially in may it take abuse for example though that is not listed here that doesn't mean okay you're supposed to live in abuse in a marriage this means if 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 a if a brother in christ is abusing you then take it to the church and i joked earlier about taking stout elders out but the picture is There are processes where that needs to be handled in the church, where that brother needs to be confronted in his sin. First by a couple, then by more, then by the church, calling him and then casting him out if he continues. And you don't need to, obviously don't need to be in a situation, any situation where you're in danger before, before your husband or your wife for that matter. So, so I would encourage you as we, as you think through this in your life, think through this alongside pastors, elders who know the word and who will shepherd you through that. So I don't want to sound simplistic in flying through this tonight. What about remarriage? Remarriage is biblical permissible only after biblical grounds for divorce. And, you know, I put a resource in the, in the back of your notes here on this because there's some brothers who I respect greatly that would even not even go this far. Let's say remar- remarriage is never... biblical biblical permissible. But it seems to me based on picture in Matthew chapter 5, Mark chapter 10, that biblically remarriage is possible only after biblical marriage, biblical grounds for divorce. And so if there's, someone has divorced on one of those biblical exceptions, those biblical grounds, then it would be possible for them to remarry. So God created marriage. He hates divorce. He regulates divorce. And then finally, God redeems divorce. And, And particularly to those who have been divorced, I want to speak especially to you right here because I want you to see that Jesus has made a covenant with you that will never, ever be broken. You have an eternal husband who is always forgiving. You have an eternal husband who loves you cares for you, Redeems you fully and completely strengthens you sustains you provides for you. He's always forgiving and he's always faithful. He is faithful. He will never commit adultery against you. And he will never abandon you. He is with you always to the end of the age. No matter what happens in this world, Jesus will never forsake his bride. Never. So what does this mean for our lives? This would be, I think, six general exhortations here. First, if you're single, just like we've talked about, maximize your singleness to advance the gospel. If you're married, love your spouse in a way that portrays the gospel. Follow Ephesians 5. Follow Ephesians 5. If you're considering divorce, if you are here tonight, part of this tonight, and considering divorce, remember the preciousness of the gospel and the power of God. Look, do you have biblical grounds for divorce? If you do not, how can you work in this alongside brothers and sisters, helping you in the church? Even if you do have biblical grounds for divorce, is reconciliation possible? Is restoration possible based on the preciousness of the gospel and the power of God? It's just, it's just where the, we need the gospel in our marriages. If you're divorced for a biblical reason, rest in the gospel in your singleness, or possibly in a future marriage. Again, some people would say, don't remarry. But if you were divorced on biblical grounds, then then obviously in one sense, yes, rest in your singleness. And then if He grants you continued singleness, enjoy that. If He leads you to marry, I pray that power, power of the gospel, you will display the love of Christ for His church in a future marriage. If you're divorced for an unbiblical reason and you're single, repent and rely on the gospel to glorify Christ as you stay single. In other words, do do not marry. Again, Scripture says, if you're divorced for an unbiblical reason and married, what do you do then? In other words, if you're remarried after an unbiblical divorce, I encourage you to repent and reflect the gospel in your current marriage. Scripture nowhere would indicate that you need to break another covenant marriage by divorcing again. Instead, Scripture calls you to magnify Christ in the marriage you have now. A heavy word, but I I trust a, a good word. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.